Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for a Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Friday, December 18th, 2009. The weather people say snow is on the way. And that we will get accumulations. Yeah, that means I get to break out my brand new snow shovel. Boy, am I thrilled. I can hardly wait. And I get to put on my brand new snow boots. <sighs> I'm going to get used to this. I pro- <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage, none whatsoever, of people just making stuff up. Like yesterday's program when we talked about the Lectio Divina. Yeah, those those monks, you know, St. Benedict and Guigo and uh, Antony and the Desert Fathers, they just completely made up. Out of their own imaginations, a four-rung ladder that supposedly you can ascend from the earth all the way up into the throne room of God and lay bare the secrets of heaven. (laughs) Yeah, right. I've got a snow shovel that'll help you ascend into the the Holy of Holies, I promise. But the thing is, is that in order for you to ascend in the Holy of Holies using this particular snow shovel, you must use it while shoveling the snow off of my driveway. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, today is a Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Let me set this up for you. We're going to be listening to a uh, sermon. um, uh, uh, It's really more like a lecture, but it's a great lecture called The Folly of Work Salvation by Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. Just, this is so good. It is on Acts chapter 3, 1 through 5. And Phil does a fantastic job of exegeting this passage and uh, tearing apart works righteousness, giving us the backstory here of uh, of the Judaizers and Paul's work against them. It is just ridiculously great. I am looking forward to sharing this with w- this uh, lecture with you. And uh, so, with that in mind, again, keep in mind Friday Light. The whole the, the whole idea behind a Friday Light is is that it's a generally shorter show. Uh, program than we normally do, and it focuses in on a singular topic, and this particular one, in light of all the crazy stuff that we heard earlier in the week in our sermon reviews, uh, you know, in all of the works righteousness, the appeals to the flesh, the whiffums, uh, the complete uh, uh, distorting 
of the doctrine of sanctification. Um, this, I, this, I think, is an absolutely timely, timely uh, lecture for you to be listening to. And so without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson, The Folly of Works Salvation. Galatians 3, I hope you've turned there. This morning we're going to try to cover the first five verses. And this is one of those places in Scripture where I think the translators have chosen a fitting place for a chapter division. This is the obvious, perfect place to put in a break. It's also a good place to come back after several months off because this is a major turning point in this epistle. Here is where the Apostle Paul launches into the very heart of his message. And he doesn't do it gently. This is a powerful place, really, to pick up where we left off, because if this text this morning hits you hard, or it seems to you like Paul has suddenly turned very severe, that's exactly how it would have seemed to the original recipients of this letter. In fact, let me just give you just the briefest of reviews of the epistle up to this point, just so that you can follow what he's saying and understand why he says this with such polemic force. Remember, he's writing this epistle to a group of churches scattered throughout the region of Galatia. These were churches who knew him personally. In fact, many of them had been planted by him and his close associates. They were predominantly Gentile churches in a strongly Gentile region, And therefore, they were intimately associated with Paul's personal and apostolic ministry because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he felt a particular ownership, maybe that's not the right word, but fathership maybe, fatherhood, whatever you would call it. He felt a a particular responsibility to these churches. He was their spiritual father. He was their mentor in the gospel at the very beginning But he'd left that region, obviously, moved on. His missionary ministry took him, as you read the New Testament, all over the Mediterranean region. And he kept in contact with them by letters. He had personal contacts with people whom he'd left in leadership there. He knew what was going on. He kept up with it. These were like his spiritual children. And as soon as he left that area, some influential men, it seems, who were apparently associated with the church in Jerusalem... Perhaps men even who had been delegated as some kind of official goodwill delegates from the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So they may have even come with an appearance of authority. They had come to the Galatian region and were trying to conform those Gentile churches that Paul had planted to the Jewish culture and the Old Testament ceremonial practices the way they practiced everything back in Jerusalem, where, of course, it was Jewish culture. They were trying to change the religious culture of the church in these Gentile areas. And these were men steeped in Old Testament law, these teachers, false teachers. Acts 15, which talks about this same sort of movement to Judaize the church, says that in the Jerusalem church there were some former Pharisees who had apparently embraced Christ by name, in name, in name only, without really understanding the or believing what Christ had accomplished on the cross. Now, these may have been those very men, former Pharisees, or at the very least, they were others who had been strongly influenced by the Pharisees. And large in their thinking was this Pharisaical belief that Gentiles were inherently unclean 
and strangers and foreigners to the covenant of God. And so they looked down on everything that had the taint of Gentile culture. And it seems that they'd heard there were these churches in Galatia, but they were all Gentiles. And so these men took it upon themselves to go and teach them in the ways of Old Testament ceremony. In their minds, the covenant of salvation was all about identification with Israel. And therefore, they had come to embrace the opinion that all the ceremonial ordinances, especially circumcision, were essential marks of people who had membership in any of God's covenants. And they, that's what they wanted to teach these Gentiles. We refer to these men as the Judaizers because they were convinced that Christ, as Israel's Messiah, had a unique and exclusive relationship with the nation of Israel. And so they, they thought you can't be a real follower of Jesus as a Gentile. They were willing to accept Gentiles in the church only if the Gentiles, in effect, converted to Judaism as well as Christianity. So they, they wanted these people to become Jewish proselytes. They placed a great deal of emphasis on circumcision as the mark of covenant membership. Now, obviously, that was the case in the Old Testament. You see that emphasis, that stress on circumcision. But they didn't realize the full significance of the new covenant. And their one mission in life was to make sure the church retained its Jewish identity, its Jewish culture. It seems to me that they came to the Galatian churches with this singular goal in mind. They wanted these Gentile churches to adopt all the external symbols of Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel. And they probably presented themselves as scholars and experts in biblical law. If, in fact, they were former Pharisees, they were great scholars as far as the law was concerned. And they came with this idea that they were needed to instruct the poor Gentile converts about how to be better Christians by adopting all the rituals and the lifestyle of Old Testament Judaism. And that message confused the Galatian churches. It was certainly a different message than they'd ever heard from the Apostle Paul. He never would have preached that, even though Paul himself was a former Pharisee. He made no effort to convert Gentiles who came to Christ to Old Testament Jewish ceremonial practices. He never did that. And and these Gentile churches knew him well. They knew Paul had never taught anything like that. And so naturally, when these men came and began to teach this, it generated at first controversy and confusion in the Galatian churches. And the Galatian Gentiles probably responded at first to the Judaizers' teaching by pointing out that they were bringing a different message than they'd ever heard from Paul. Remember that Paul himself, again, was a Pharisee prior to his conversion, but he says in Philippians 3 that when he was converted, he realized his own self-righteousness as a Pharisee was just so much dung. That's the word he uses, filth, utterly worthless in terms of its ability to earn merit with God. And so Paul had personally set all of that aside. He'd abandoned it. He, he, he came to see that the imputed righteousness of Christ was better than all those ceremonies and all that other stuff. And there's no way Paul ever would have wasted time teaching a Gentile church and to try to get them to follow the external elements of a legalistic religion that he himself had been liberated from when he became a Christian. 
Now, it's obvious from the text and the tone of the uh, of this book of Galatians that the Judaizers had answered whatever critics they may have encountered in Galatia by challenging the apostolic credentials of Paul himself. They also questioned the accuracy of the message he brought to them. They set themselves up as Paul's enemies. Now, i got to point this out. That's the way it is with heretics. They oppose the apostolic message. And so by opposing Paul's message in a very real way, they were opposing the Word of God because Paul himself, as an author of the Scriptures, okay, he brought the true biblical gospel. And so how heretics work is they always, always, always undermine and attack um, the, the biblical text. The liberals are notorious for calling into question the, quote, Christianity of Paul. And why? Because Paul so clearly taught penal substitution, taught salvation by grace through faith alone, not by any works. We are not justified by what we do. And so what do these Judaizers do? They attack Paul's authority, and in a real way, that's attacking the authority of Scripture itself because Paul got his apostleship from none other than Jesus Christ personally. We continue. You know, Paul's not a real apostle. We represent true Christianity. We are from the church in Jerusalem where the church started. We have the credentials and the knowledge and the implicit approval of all the apostles in Jerusalem. And you ought to forget what the apostle Paul told you and listen to us instead. That's the kind of message they were giving. And you know that from the nature of Galatians because the first item on Paul's agenda in this epistle was the defense of his own apostleship and a reaffirmation of the gospel he proclaimed. And that defense of himself and his message consumes the first two chapters of Galatians. That's what we've been studying really all year. Paul recounts, remember, the history of his conversion. He recaps the circumstances under which he was made an apostle and given the gospel. He says, by special revelation from Christ himself... He he says he received both the gospel and his apostolic commission personally from the resurrected Christ, chapters 1, verses 11 and 12. For the gospel which was preached of me is not after men, for neither I received it of man, neither was taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty strong claim, right? But he backs it up and he explains how the other apostles even recognized and affirmed both the message he preached and the authority Christ had given him to be an apostle. Chapter 1, verse 15 through chapter 2, verse 9. That's the whole point of that. And then at the end of chapter 2, he describes a conflict he had with Peter in which he even had to set Peter straight When Peter began to compromise, not by his teaching, but by his actions, but he describes that episode, and that takes us through the end of chapter 2. Now, this is Paul at his most personal, first two chapters. The only other place Paul talks more about himself is 2 Corinthians, where he is, again, defending his own apostolic credentials. But that's unusual for Paul. He doesn't like talking about himself. He despises the idea of boasting. And he wasn't even normally given to a very vigorous self-defense whenever anybody accused him or, or whatever. But he had to defend his apostleship 
for the sake of the gospel. And so he does. He does it both in 2 Corinthians and here in the first two chapters of Galatians. And, in fact, he devotes those first two short chapters of Galatians at at the very beginning to, to defending himself. It's a wonderful sort of intimate personal insight into the life and the heart of the Apostle Paul. And so that's the sum of everything up to this point. Paul has defended his own apostleship. He's made it clear that there have been at least a couple of times when he had to defend the purity of the gospel against the compromise of other church leaders, especially the guys in Jerusalem, as well as Peter in that famous episode at Antioch. And the clear point Paul is making is this. It's a very important point. He's saying that the truth of the gospel takes priority over anyone's personal position or reputation. There's nobody. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter if the person is a radio host. It doesn't matter if they're a best-selling Christian author uh, uh, who's who's got a big, sweet deal with the, the number one Christian publishing house on the planet, or if they pastor the largest church in America or the world. Nothing trumps the gospel. No human being. Everybody gets tested against God's word. And if someone's teaching or practices contradict the gospel, they are to be rebuked and called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We continue. Nobody has enough clout to get by with teaching or compromising the gospel. And in other words, the epistle so far, the first two chapters of Galatians, have all been one long commentary on the warning Paul issues in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where he says, But although we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And then he says it again. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than you have received, let him be accursed. He's saying it doesn't matter who it is. It's a big wig from Jerusalem, a prominent apostle like Peter, an angel from heaven, or Paul says even himself, even if it comes from the apostle Paul himself, if he brings a message contrary to the message you have already heard, he says, treat that person as anathema. The truth of the gospel itself trumps everything, and don't forget it. And so for two chapters, that's the message. Paul has been defending the gospel by defending his own apostolic credentials and by recounting these episodes from his own experience where he had to defend the gospel at a high cost to himself. But here is that great turning point, chapter 3, verse 1. And Paul turns from his own experience. He stops talking about his own experience and his own history, and he turns to the experience of the Galatians themselves. He addresses them directly and in not-so-flattering terms. He reminds them how they were saved, what they've experienced, where they've come from to get to this point, and he cites all of those things as proof of the great doctrine of justification by faith. Now, that's what he began defending early in chapter 1, justification by faith. That doctrine, that single truth, has been the focus of his epistle all the way along, justification by faith. And it is still the issue here. But here his style of defense changes, and the nature of his arguments change. 
And now he's going to defend the doctrine of justification in a way that is even more direct, more personal, more polemic, more biblical, more doctrinal than anything he said so far. He's going to hit him between the eyes with it. And that's why this passage takes us to the very bedrock of Paul's own theological foundation. It's, it's the most important truth Paul knows of. And so he defends it strongly. And you notice the change in tone and direction with some shocking and plain-spoken personal words directed directly at the Galatian Christians. Chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read the passage. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, we'll limit ourselves this morning to those five verses because they stand together well as a unit. It's really one unit in his thought. And there's more than enough here to fill our time. So let's go through it just pretty quickly here. Notice, first of all, that this is a series of questions all put directly to the Galatians in the most blunt, candid, personal terms. Paul is not concerned with diplomacy here. He wants them to get the point, no matter how straightforward he has to be with them. And so notice, every verse in this entire section contains a question. In fact, every sentence in this section is a question framed in a way that would make them think and examine themselves and review their own spiritual history and reflect on the way they had allowed themselves to be so easily shaken from the foundation Paul's clear teaching had laid for them. Now, from the opening words of the epistle, chapter 1, Paul has tried to make it clear that he regards the religion represented by the Judaizers as a whole different religion, foreign to authentic Christianity. The gospel these men were preaching was a different gospel. That's right. It wasn't that it was the same gospel said a different way. It was a different gospel, different religion, wasn't Christianity, cannot save, it damns to hell. That's Paul's take, and that's the take that we should all take in regard to false gospels. The means of salvation they presented was a whole different way of salvation than the Galatians embraced when they first embraced the gospel. And I really think the evidence suggests that even among the apostles, Paul was the only one who really saw this clearly. These men, if they'd stayed in Jerusalem and believed what they believed and taught what they taught, might never have been identified for the heretics they were. The seriousness of their error might never have surfaced, might never have been pointed out. But they were dangerous heretics, teaching a religion that was something completely different from Christianity. And the discord 
between the two Gospels, one taught by the Apostle Paul, the other taught by the Judaizers, the discord here was no mere difference in emphasis. The Judaizers, Paul says, were teaching a completely different religion. They weren't simply preaching a similar message with a different slant or the same gospel with a Jewish flavor to it. And despite what the Judaizers claimed, what the Galatians were hearing from them was not a better, more pure, more authentic way of being a Christian. In taking the Galatians back to the Old Testament ceremonies, they were not making them better Christians. They were derailing their faith completely. And so diplomacy was not called for here. I like how Paul didn't try to answer this through an appeal to scholarship. You know, he could have treated these men like, well, they're fellow Pharisees, so I need to show them due respect. But notice, he doesn't offer to dialogue with the Judaizers. He isn't willing to compromise with them. He doesn't paper over their error with nice words to make it sound like it's really not so bad and they're well-meaning people and all that. Like a faithful shepherd, he only wants to expose their error and warn his flock not to follow these wolves. He takes a completely different approach from the postmodern approach that's so popular today where you're supposed to affirm, you know, what you like about every point of view you disagree with and underline all the strong points first. And then, but only then, if you're really gentle about it, you can give some weak little milksop words of caution about... Yeah, isn't this called the critique sandwich? I'm not a follower or believer in the critique sandwich. Say what you need to say. If they're mature and wise, they will take your critique to heart. And if they're basically large babies, they'll cry and moan and tell you how mean you are. And you didn't do it right. And yeah, get over it. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not a big firm believer in the critique sandwich. No. Say what you need to say and say what you mean. I'm a man. Not some castrated person about the things you disagree with that's the way it works today now after all paul could have done that he could have said now these are well-meaning brothers and they they're they're esteemed representatives from our sister church in jerusalem fellow pharisees and it's good that they recognize the authority of the old testament and they're bringing us to back to a much needed reminder that christianity has jewish roots he could have commended the Judaizers for their scholarship, for their zeal for the law, for their knowledge of Old Testament history and all of that. But you know what? He didn't. He dismissed these men and their doctrine as a serious danger to the spiritual health and well-being of the church. And he stressed the fact that their doctrine, by nullifying the central truth of justification by faith, was actually undermining the very foundations of the gospel itself. He did not affirm these men as brethren. And he makes a point of, of that. Even though they claimed to be Christians and evidently held positions of prominence in the Jerusalem church, Paul rejected both them and their doctrine as serious dangers to the truth of Christ. And he was absolutely blunt about it. Now, that is important to acknowledge because... 
Frankly, it is the opposite direction from the way most people in the church want us to go today. Frankly, the Judaizers' doctrine had in it the very same seeds of error you find in Roman Catholicism, with its emphasis on rituals and ceremonies and external signs as the instruments of justification. Same thing the Judaizers were teaching. It had a, their error had a whole lot in common with the postmodern movement known as the New Perspective on Paul, where justification is often portrayed as a process that depends in the end on the believer's own works of righteousness for our final justification before God. In essence, that's very similar to what these guys were teaching. And similar errors are found, for example, in, in the teachings of Seventh-day Adventism, the expressions of Anglican and High Presbyterian sacramentalism, modern Lutheranism, other legalistic varieties of religion that, frankly, are currently making inroads from the, into the evangelical mainstream from the fringes of the movement. And don't forget uh, seeker-drivenism, all those churches out there that are in the seeker-driven movement that seek to uh, teach people to take next steps to love God and love others. That's all legalism. And everybody these days thinks the right way to deal with this is, is let's dialogue about it. Let's, let's get together with Roman Catholics and, and have a dialogue and, and find where we have common ground and affirm that and not make so much of our differences. Hey, if we don't have the gospel in common, we don't have anything in common. Plain and simple. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard thus far, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's right, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is uh, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. 
Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Friday Light Edition of Fighting for the Faith. Warning. Listening to this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your pastor. Especially if uh, he thinks he knows what he's talking about when it's obvious that actually he's biblically illiterate. Or I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you... We depend upon your generous financial contributions to pay our bills so that we can pay our production fees and continue to produce Fighting for the Faith as well as Pirate Christian Radio. Uh, currently, we are looking for 700 people to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. That's down from 1,000, so we're making progress. Uh, if you have not joined the crew yet, it's time for you to do so. The way you do it is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on Join Our Crew and as soon as your membership is processed, you will be given a button that says, click here to access the Pirate Christian Cove. Click on that, and you have access to our secret Pirate Christian Cove, a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go grow deeper in God's Word, biblical theology, and sound Christian apologetics. Fine resource. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond that, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button and uh, making a contribution there online securely or making your gift payable to 
Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we are in the middle of listening to a lecture by Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog entitled The Folly of Works Salvation, and it's on Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And uh, without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson again. We have common ground and affirm that and not make so much of our differences. By the way, I think the same thing is true of the latest fad among evangelicals, which is known as the emerging church, where the stress of most of their teaching is usually placed on what believers do rather than what Christ has done on our behalf. And as the gospel continues to take more and more of a back seat in the visible church today, more and more people start pleading for dialogue. They want a friendly, soft-spoken, academic approach to dealing with error. And I think the example of the Apostle Paul is actually more in line with the direction genuine believers today need to take. Amen. In confronting the postmodern drift. And so I appreciate Paul's bluntness in these verses. And I'm encouraged to be blunt too. Not so long ago... 75 years ago or so, J. Gresham Machen also drew courage from Paul's example in Galatians as he sought to answer modernism and the various errors of his day. He also pointed out that Galatians is included in the canon for a reason. It's true that Paul, in this epistle, is confronting a very specific error that was in some ways unique and limited to his time. The Judaizers were arguing specifically for continuing Old Testament ceremonial observances in the church as a means for gaining justification. No one today would teach that precise idea. Now, there's nobody saying you need to be circumcised in order to be a, a Christian. And some people might even be inclined to think that then all of this in Galatians has very little relevance for our situation today because, frankly, there isn't anyone out there with any influence in the church who is arguing that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Machen said this, quote, At first sight, that fact might seem to destroy the usefulness of the epistle for the present day, for we, are, we of today are in no danger of desiring to keep Jewish fasts and feasts, but a little consideration will show that this is not at all the case. The really essential thing about the Judaizers' contention was not found in those particular works of the law that they urged upon the Galatians as grounds of justification, but in the fact that they urged any works in this sense at all. The really serious error into which they fell was not that they carried the ceremonial law over into the new dispensation, but that they preached a religion of human merit rather than a religion of divine grace. And Machen went on to point out that virtually every error the church faced in his day had at its heart the very same false teaching about justification by works. And nothing has changed. We face the exact same challenge today. Different names, different spiritualities, different leaders, same problem. Justification by works. 
or how does Rick Warren put it? Oh, yeah, deeds, not creeds. Every, every error that he was concerned about was trying to smuggle some sort of work in and make it instrumental in our justification. He saw, he saw that tendency in the teaching of the liberals who said that love and good works are the true essence of Christianity and uh, rather than sound doctrine, you know, same people, uh, similar people saying that today. Machen saw it in the various theories of the atonement, theories that are being revived today in some circles, where people are teaching that Christ's death on the cross was merely an example for us to follow and not a substitute punishment for our sins. Machen said this, quote, These are all just different ways of exalting the merit of man over against the cross of Christ. They are all of them attacks upon the very heart and core of the Christian religion. And against all of them, the mighty polemic of this epistle to the Galatians is turned. And so this is an especially relevant passage of Scripture. And it confronts all of the main errors that are assaulting the church today. The Apostle Paul was defending a principle that is the very heart and soul of Christianity. And it would be sheer folly to think that this doctrine is just an academic point of truth. Or to think that the defense of justification by faith calls for a dispassionate, friendly, academic dialogue as opposed to the passionate proclamation of the truth. And I think Paul gave us an example here that we need to follow. By the, by the way, the principle... Paul is defending here is the very same principle that sparked the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith, the principle of sola fide, faith alone. It's the same point of doctrine Martin Luther called the article by which the church stands or falls. It's the same doctrine John Calvin called the, the principal hinge of all religion. It's a point of truth that calls for a passionate defense. And those who think it's not really worth fighting over some arcane point about justification, have not really begun to grasp the essence of the gospel message. Now, Paul puts that on display for us here through a series of questions that all work to the same end. All of these questions have the same purpose in mind. He is contrasting two radically different and mutually exclusive gospels. One promotes a religion of human works, and that was the religion being peddled by the Judaizers. The other is a message about divine grace, and it promises complete justification before the judgment throne of God on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf, and that alone. Not has nothing to do with anything we do. And the questions Paul poses to the Galatians set up three contrasts. And I'm going to let this trio of contrasts be our outline. If you want to get the main points, here they are. These two completely incompatible approaches to religion are distinguished, first of all, by the difference between law and grace. Second, by the difference between flesh and spirit. And third, by the difference between works and faith. And so with that as our outline, let's work our way through the text, and I'll give you these points again one at a time. First, notice the distinction Paul makes between law and gospel. Law and gospel. Verses 1 and 2, O foolish Galatians, 
Who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now let me say first of all that the bluntness of this language is stunning. He doesn't call them brethren. Even though he's already addressed them that way in chapter 1, verse 11, he called them once brethren. He's going to call them brethren again as he works his way through. So I don't think, I don't think he's necessarily assuming that they're not brethren. But it's, in fact, it's clear that he, he regarded these people warmly as his own brethren and his own spiritual children. These were sheep for whom he personally was responsible as a shepherd. But here in this passage, all the warmth and brotherhood of that relationship gives way to some very abrupt and severe-sounding language, and he introduces it all by calling them fools, basically, you foolish Galatians. Now, the word foolish there is from a Greek expression that speaks specifically of a lack of understanding, and it signifies spiritual dullness. It's not the kind of cheap personal insult Jesus condemned, you know, in Matthew 5.22, we're about, I think, about to get there in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell fire. There, Jesus used a totally different word for fool, and that, the word Jesus used speaks really of a godless person. It's not just nincompoop, but the idea is an evil fool. And he says, don't call your brother that. What he's forbidding is angry name-calling. But as a matter of fact, in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, when you remember when Jesus appeared to those disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? They didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. And they were feeling discouraged and totally defeated after the crucifixion. And before Jesus revealed to them who he really was, he himself said to them, "'O fools!' and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And there, Jesus used the exact same word Paul uses here. In effect, Jesus, in Luke 24, gives the definition of this kind of foolishness. Fools and slow of heart to believe. It's a slowness of heart to believe. This kind of foolishness is a spiritual dullness for which you are culpable. And that's what Paul is saying about the Galatians. Their willingness, their ability to be so easily influenced by the Judaizers' error was really an inexcusable kind of spiritual dullness. It was foolish. Paul says it was almost as if some witch had cast a spell on them. He says, who hath bewitched you? What has so blinded your eyes that you are missing something that should be so obvious? Now, he's using hyperbole here, of course. I don't think he really thought that they were under the power of some evil magic. But frankly, he says, in effect, that's the only benign explanation I can think of for your confusion about these things. Why else would you be so dull? Now, they certainly ought to have known better, really. Paul himself had taught them better. Look at the next phrase in Galatians 3.1. Who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? Now that's an interesting expression. 
Because what Paul is suggesting there is that they are like eyewitnesses who don't believe something they've clearly seen with their own eyes because they've been put under the control of a hypnotist. Now, I don't think Paul is literally suggesting that any of the Galatians were actual eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. That's not the point here. Christ had not literally and visibly been crucified before their very eyes and in their very midst. So what does this mean? But Matthew Henry, who is normally a reliable commentator, suggests that this was a a reference to the sacrament of communion and that the ordinance of the Lord's table was such a vivid, visible picture and reminder of the atoning work of Christ that having participated in the Lord's table, it was as if they'd been eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. That seems a bit of a stretch to me. And really, there's nothing in the context to suggest that Paul has the communion ordinance in mind in this verse. And frankly, while it's true that the Lord's table is a memorial and a visible, tangible reminder of the body and blood of Christ, participating in the sacrament of communion, and that in and of itself, really wouldn't be the same thing as being an eyewitness to the crucifixion. Because while it's true that the elements of the Lord's table are symbols and reminders of the body and blood of Christ, the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine is not really that sort of vivid picture portrayal of the act of crucifixion. It's a reminder of the crucifixion, but it isn't a picture of the act itself. And Paul uses a word here that speaks of the most vivid kind of evidence, the most vivid description or picture of the actual crucifixion. It literally speaks of drawing a picture, a big picture, Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. The Greek word is prographo, and it it gives the idea of a large, public, vivid illustration like a billboard. The New King James Version says, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And the New American Standard Bible says the same thing, except it uses the expression publicly portrayed instead of clearly portrayed. And the word contains both ideas. And in fact, one translator coined the expression publicly placarded. Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly placarded before you as crucified. It, It was as if a graphic picture of Christ on the cross had been posted on a billboard or shown on a movie screen in the sight of all the Galatians together. And not just once... But repeatedly, that's the idea of the verb here. And I think this is pretty simple, really. I think Paul is making a reference to his own preaching of the gospel in their midst. Remember his own words to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is how he described his own preaching of the gospel in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.23. But we preach Christ crucified. And here in Galatians, in the final chapter, verse 14, he says this, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross was that single central focus and the substance of the gospel Paul proclaimed. 
And I am convinced that when he said that he had set forth Christ, placarded him before them, he was not suggesting that his gospel message consisted only of a narrative description of the crucifixion resurrection event. Don't think that's what he meant. He's not saying, because the substance of my gospel was a vivid description of the, of the crucifixion event, it included that, but that really wasn't the essence of the gospel. The gospel is Paul's explanation of the meaning of the cross, the significance of the atonement. Listen to Galatians 6.14 again, this time the whole verse. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You see that idea of an exchange, a substitution there? Or go back to Galatians 2.20, a verse we looked at not so very long ago. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And to put it as simply as I know how, the substance and the heart of Paul's gospel message was this, that the cross was a substitution where Christ bore our sins and paid the penalty, the full penalty of our guilt on our behalf, and his resurrection is the proof that God accepted that sacrifice as full payment for our sins, and so now we participate in the resurrection life of Christ. So that justification is not merely a future reality that hinges on what we do in this life. It's something Christ has already done for us. For the believer who is united with Christ, justification is a past event, complete, unalterable. It's the guarantee that eternal life is our present possession even now as we look forward to the full outworking of our salvation. We can rest confident that we are justified here and now because of what Christ did at the cross. That's the message. And if you set aside that truth in favor of a message about something you must do to participate in the covenant, then you have, in effect, abandoned the true gospel in favor of the law, which could never save anyway. Amen. That's right. Spot on. Spot on. And that is the very truth Paul stated at the end of chapter 2. So this is right in the context here. He explains what he's saying. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, the gospel message itself is all about the perfect freeness of salvation in Christ. Justification is not something we can earn. We don't do something to get it. And therefore, it's not at all about what we do. And if it's not about what we do, then it has nothing in common with the message of the law, which is all about what we do. Don't confuse the gospel with the law, Paul is saying. He's saying to the Galatians, remember how you were saved. I have one question for you, he says. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What did you originally believe? Was it law or gospel? How was it that you received the Holy Spirit, he says? Was it by obeying the law or by believing the gospel? It's a pretty basic question. And it's designed to get the Galatians to reflect on the power of the message that brought them to faith in the first place. Because they were in danger of forgetting the gospel itself 
in all their zeal to accommodate this other message, a different message, which was straight out of the law. Now, here's an important point to understand before we move on to the next point. And I want you to keep this firmly fixed in your thinking as we move through the rest of Galatians. Because starting here and continuing through the rest of the book, Paul sets up this antithesis between law and gospel. And it's a crucial antithesis. Important to understand what he's saying. Several of the trends in today's theology that have me so concerned all have this in common. They want to blur the line between law and gospel. It's not a good thing to do. Some have even denied that Paul made any kind of antithesis between law and gospel. I don't see how you can make any sense of this passage unless you recognize that antithesis. It's clear, and it will become even more clear as we work our way through the rest of the epistle. But notice, in making this antithesis between law and gospel, Paul is not saying that the law is inherently evil. He deals with that clearly back in Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. May it never be. Certainly the law is not sin. The law serves a good purpose. As a matter of fact, it has several good purposes. It eliminates every option we have for salvation except for Christ, and therefore it's a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. We're going to see that in the next chapter of Galatians. The law teaches us what evil is, Paul says in Romans 7, and therefore its moral precepts, as distinguished from all the ceremonial outward things in the law, its moral content is a sound rule of life for believers. And Paul says as much, Romans 6, in Romans 6.14, when he says, we are not under the law but under grace. And when he says in Galatians 5.18 that if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law, he goes on to say he is not suggesting that the law itself is irrelevant to how Christians ought to live. He's not denying that the moral precepts of the law apply to us, as if, you know, some people think it doesn't matter what a Christian does with relationship to the Ten Commandments. But what Paul is saying here is simply this. It's a very focused and pointed message. He's saying the law is not a means of justification. The law's ceremonies are in no sense instruments by which we gain entry into God's covenant or lay hold of justification. And it is in that sense that we are not under the law. It's in that sense and that sense only that the law is antithetical to the gospel. And so that's the first contrast, and it's a careful distinction between law and gospel. Here's a second contrast you need to see, and this one is the distinction between flesh and spirit. Verse 3. And he's still using the blunt language, pointing out that, that they are unbelievable and inexcusable in their foolishness. Are you so foolish, he says again, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? You see the contrast between Spirit and flesh? And the argument here is very simple. It goes like this. If you laid hold of salvation by simple faith in the beginning... Why would you abandon the simplicity of faith in Christ 
the first time someone comes along and suggests to you that your faith is not enough, start adding requirements to the gospel after the fact, and you have, in essence, abandoned the gospel itself and adopted a different message. Or to put it in other terms that I think are relevant to some of the postmodern errors that are floating around today, if simple faith in Christ is the instrument of justification in the beginning, by what twisted rationale would someone suppose that something other than faith is necessary for final justification? If you can trust Christ for your justification, put your trust in Him alone at the beginning for justification, why would you put your trust for the rest of salvation in anything you do for yourself? Here's an illustration that might help you understand why Paul's language is so harsh-sounding. I mean, this does jar our ears, right? He's calling them foolish. He's saying, are you mad? Are you crazy? Let me give you an illustration that explains this. A couple of years ago, Darlene and I took a ship from Seattle to Alaska. We got on the ship, very relaxing, very nice, till it pulls out of the harbor, gets out in the open sea. And on that particular day, during the voyage, the seas were rough enough to make half the people on the ship seasick. We simply trusted this ship to take us there, but in 12 hours or so into the trip, the ship was heaving up and down enough to cause me to examine the wisdom of trusting such a heavy husk of metal to get me all the way to Alaska. Listen carefully to this illustration. It's actually a really good one. I'm not prone to seasickness, but this was nerve-wracking. Now, I'm not really this stupid, but let's just suppose, just imagine, if you will, that I decide... I can no longer trust this ship to get me to my destination. I want to get to Alaska and plant my feet on dry ground. And so I go to Darlene and announce in all seriousness that I'm scared of, to be on this heaving ship. And she'd be in bed, of course, because she does get seasick. And so I tell her, I'm scared to be here. I'm going to get out and swim the rest of the way to Alaska. <laughs> what do you think she would say to me? Are you nuts? Have you utterly lost it? What makes you think you could ever swim under your own power and your own strength all the way to Alaska? That's insane, especially in rough water. You trusted this ship enough to get on it. Don't even think about getting off now. That's suicide. That is exactly the spirit of Paul's message to the Galatians. He says, having received the Spirit of God by faith and having begun the Christian life on that basis, why would you ever abandon the Holy Spirit and try to manufacture a self-made legal righteousness instead? Now, someone might say, well, okay, I won't abandon ship completely, but I feel like I need to help this ship reach its destination, and so I'm going to jump in the water at the back and hang on to the ship while I paddle kick and help push it towards Alaska. And I'm going to keep trusting Christ, but just in case, I'm going to do all the legalistic stuff too. I think that's what the Galatians were saying. And you know what? That is still just totally insane. If you think there's additional stuff you need to do to add your own merit to the finished work of Christ... You really aren't trusting Christ at all. Right 
on. Yep, that's oh. <laughs> Amen, Phil. Good job. In practical terms, the Holy Spirit is the seal and the guarantee of our covenant membership. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, and Ephesians 1, verse 14, both of those verses, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit as the earnest or the down payment, the security deposit and the collateral of our final salvation. Or in the words of the Apostle John, 1 John 3, 24, hereby we know that he abideth in us, by the Spirit which he hath given us. Now, Paul always taught this truth, that the Spirit of God is the earnest, the collateral, the security deposit, the down payment for our finished salvation. And you can be sure he had taught that to the Galatians as well. So they were dead wrong to dream about giving up their confidence in the Spirit of God, who is the one true living guarantee that we are in the covenant, and instead depend on some obsolete fleshly symbol like circumcision from an obsolete covenant. And so the expressions flesh and spirit here are shorthand for circumcision, flesh, which is a fleshly emblem of an old covenant, and spirit, the spirit of God, who is the living spiritual symbol of our membership in the new covenant. And he says... The Spirit is the true mark of membership in the new covenant, not circumcision. That pertains to the old covenant. That's obsolete. Why, having begun with the Spirit, would you give that up to take a fleshly symbol from an obsolete covenant? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? And I think they would have understood exactly what he meant, having heard him teach these things. And so if you're following, we have these contrasts. The first is a contrast between law and gospel. The second is a contrast between flesh and spirit. The third, and the most important contrast of all, because it's the one that sums up and explains all the others, is a contrast between works and faith. And I can finish this quickly, because there's not much left to say about this. Because, again, this sums up the truth that's in the other two contrasts. There is a contrast here between works and faith, verses 4 and 5. Paul continues questioning them. Notice everything's a question. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, there are two things in verse 4 that are significant, and I want to explain. The first has to do with the words suffered lot in every commentary you read about Galatians, discussing, does he mean here that they were actually suffering? Were they under persecution? Is this literal suffering? I don't think he's talking about literal suffering or persecution here. Nothing in the context suggests that. And if he was talking about trials, hardships, persecution, sickness, afflictions that were being inflicted on them as if they were truly victims of any suffering... And if Paul was referring to that kind of suffering, it would be totally out of character for Paul to bring that up in a context where he's actually scolding them. But I think he's using this expression idiomatically to speak of their experiences in general. It could be paraphrased this way. Have you experienced so many things in vain? You know, like the verse, the famous verse that says, suffer the little children to come to me. It doesn't mean cause the children to suffer. It means permit them. 
Let them experience this. Here he's saying, have you experienced so many things in vain? In other words, all that you have gone through since you believed the gospel, was all of that in vain, all the changes in your life, all the dramatic transformation Christ has brought about, was all that for naught? This is an appeal to their experience. He wants them to remember what a dramatic difference Christ has made in their lives just because of their faith, without any ceremonial obedience to Old Testament stuff. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see here is Paul doesn't really believe it was all in vain. This little sentence fragment is really a parenthetical idea that Paul tosses in here, I think just to let them know that he hasn't written them off completely. He can't bring himself to believe that all the gospel ministry he had labored for in their midst was utterly and completely in vain, as if they had never really trusted the gospel in the first place. And and that, by the way, that little fragment, if it's really in vain, a little parenthetical aside. That's the only thing in this whole passage that's not a question. It's, a, it's meant to reassure them. He hasn't written them off. And then verse 5 makes the key contrast. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's the New King James Version. Here's a place, you won't hear me say this often, but here's a place where I actually prefer the New International Version, because it makes a good paraphrase for this verse anyway, even if it's a looser than literal rendering of the Greek words. Here's what it means. This is the simple sense of the text. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? That is the bottom line question. And it's a contrast between faith and works. Why has God blessed you in the first place? Is it because you earned his approval with your legal obedience or because through faith you laid hold of his grace? And anyone who's ever truly understood the gospel knows that salvation is a gift of divine grace. It's not a reward for our works. It's apprehended by faith, not through the works of the law. It's based on what Christ has done for us and not what we do for him. And that is a major distinction. It's a crucial one to get right because it makes the whole difference between true Christianity and every kind of false religion, including a false religion like that of the Judaizers that goes by the name Christian. And that is why the doctrine of justification by faith is so supremely important and why it's no small matter It's not a little issue of theological trivia to confront and refute errors like the teaching of the Judaizers and all their 21st century counterparts. May God give us the grace to understand the truth and the wisdom to defend it well. It's clear here, isn't it? And I hope you can understand the Apostle Paul's passion and why he defended so boldly what others in the church thought was just a minor difference of opinion, a difference in emphasis. It wasn't. And I hope you share Paul's zeal for the gospel. May we finish as we began, not by works but by faith. Not in the energy of our own fleshly efforts but through the Spirit. And not by the works of the law, but by completely trusting in Christ. Let's pray. There you go. Good, good lecture. Good distinction of law and gospel, works and grace. Yeah, you can't, yeah. 
Fantastic job, uh, Phil. Great, great lecture. Folks, if you are growing in your understanding of law and gospel, sound Christian apologetics, discerning uh, what is biblical and not biblical through the efforts uh, and the work that we do here at Fighting for the Faith, then please financially support us. You can do so. In fact, right now we're still looking for 700 more people, 700 people to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Uh, The way you join is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. It is a mere $6.95 a month. And, of course, if you would like to donate above and beyond that, you can do so by clicking on our Donate button and filling in the amount that you would like to donate there. It's all secure and online right there. Or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what did you think of uh, Phil Johnson's lecture there on Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5? I think he did a fine job. But of course, I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com is my email address. Again, that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.